king in verse 26. And those who mock him, mock him as king. The story of Jesus' life in the Gospel of Mark is of him as a king. And so that's what I want to present before us. I want us to see what it means for Jesus to be king. And we're going to see that in two ways. Firstly, we're going to see the humiliation of the king. And then secondly, we're going to see the glory and the victory of this king. His humiliation, his shame, is something that's obvious as we read the Gospel of Mark. We have recorded that he was beaten. We read that he was stripped naked. And we know from the historical record that crucifixion was not a quick death. We have many accounts from the ancient world of people taking days to die upon the cross. But in Mark's account, we have six hours of excruciating pain for Jesus. But it's not the pain that is in Mark's mind, primarily, as excruciating as it might be. What we have recorded from Mark is Jesus' humiliation and his shame. And we see this in four ways. Firstly, he's mocked by the, sh- by the soldiers. There in verses 16 to 20 of Mark chapter 15. They say, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they spit on him. Now, spitting is one of those grotesque things. It's even kind of, it feels a little uh, impolite to speak of it in church. Because to spit in someone's face, well, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a complete form of contempt. Even if we're to see spit on the ground, <clears throat> we avoid it. And so what the soldiers are doing as they hurl their insults and as they spit in his face is they are executing upon Jesus the ultimate form of contempt, that he is indeed less than the ground that they walk upon. But it's not just the soldiers who mock Jesus, it's those who pass by. We're told there in verse 29, it seems as though their purpose of coming near Jesus is not necessarily to mock him, but they're passing by, but they can't help but see his humiliation. They can't help but see his shame. And they contribute as they scoff and deride him. And it's not just the common folk or the soldiers, it's those who are from the religious elite, the educated. They have a special form of ridicule there in verse 31. They mock him over his very identity and his mission. They know Jesus' pressure point. They know what his purpose was. Now, my children actually mock me all the time. They mock me because I'm a terrible singer. And I don't mind because I know that I'm a terrible singer. And so that form of mocking is something that you can laugh off. But there is a form of mocking that cuts the heart. If they were to mock me that I was a terrible father or that I was a terrible minister 
That, for me, would be something of great significance, of great pain. Well, here is what the religious leaders do. They point to the very reason that Jesus has come, to save people, and yet they expose Jesus to humiliation because he can't even save himself, let alone anyone else. And finally, we have the mocking of the criminals. Thank you. Thanks, Gabby. There in verse 32, if you want to turn back to your second reading, you'll see that those who you would imagine could have a degree of empathy for Jesus, those who know his physical pain, those who are themselves being crucified, they don't give him sympathy, but they themselves with a very skerrick of energy that is left for them, they revile and they abuse him. Do you see Mark's picture here? It's not a picture of the physical pain. The physical pain is present. Mark glances through it. He acknowledges it. But what he focuses on here is Jesus' humiliation, his dehumanisation, his shame. And here we see that Jesus is isolated. We see that he is totally alone. Earlier in the Gospel account, we read that those disciples who spent time with Jesus, who ate with him, who heard his teaching, who promised him their loyalty, have fled. Except for Peter. Peter stays with Jesus. And then three times, three times wounding Jesus, he too flees, flees. he too betrays. And the only disciples who stay close that are recorded in the Gospel of Mark are the women. And yet even the women are there from a distance in verse 40. They say that We live in a time for which loneliness is an epidemic. And studies have been done recently that show us that isolation can cause greater health problems than that of obesity and smoking. Anecdotally, we know the contribution that another person makes in our lives when a spouse dies. It's often not too long after that and that the spouse, that the second spouse, will also pass away. You see, because human people are built to be in connection with one another, they're built to be in community with one another. And here, Jesus is experiencing everything that is distant from what it is to be human. Even the creation itself conspires in his isolation. Verse 33, we read that Jesus in his isolation is then covered in darkness. Psychologists have have sought to to do studies on the effects of both isolation and darkness. But ethics committees have prevented psychologists from doing these studies because the effect even in a laboratory test of isolation and darkness, is so profound that it can take people a whole lifetime to get over. Here, Jesus 
is alone, deserted by all human company and covered in darkness. We know from the Old Testament that darkness is a form of judgment. In the Exodus, one of the plagues is darkness that comes over Egypt. Later on in the Gospel, outside of our readings, as Jesus is dying on the cross, he speaks these words as the final words. He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mark leaves the very final moment of Jesus' isolation to the very end of his life. Every human being has deserted him. Darkness covers him. And now here at the point of death, Jesus, it seems, is even isolated from his father. The father who has loved him, we read in the scriptures, from all of eternity. The father who we read in the Gospel of Mark is pleased with his son. Here for Jesus, it's not just isolation from other people, but it's isolation from the one who he, who he has known from all eternity. We're told that he cries out. He cries out in a loud voice. And it appears as though Jesus is alone. But we know in the context of the Gospel of Mark that Jesus isn't totally alone here. Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Mark records. This is important. This is important in the Gospel of Mark because there are other times in the Gospel of Mark when others cry out with a loud voice. Back in chapter 1 of the Gospel of Mark, it's an unclean spirit who cries out in a loud voice. In chapter 5, it's a demon-possessed man who cries out in a loud spirit. In the Gospel of Mark, those who cry out in a loud spirit, in a loud voice, are those under demonic possession. The role of the evil one in the Bible is to accuse The role of the evil one is to get inside our hearts and our heads and to speak lies, to speak the kind of lies that God doesn't love us, that he couldn't love us, that he doesn't know us, that he won't forgive us. These are the lies of the evil one. And here, in Jesus' isolation from humanity and from his father, here as he's covered in darkness. Mark would have us understand that Jesus is under the ultimate evil attack. The ultimate attack. His ultimate crisis that the one who has loved him for all eternity perhaps doesn't love him now. Here is Jesus experiencing the weight and the consequence of sin. Here is the humiliation of the cross. And there are three ironies of the cross that I want us to see. Because in the ironies of the cross, in what, we, what appears as shame, 
is actually the glory. In what actually appears as Jesus' defeat is actually his victory. Remember the taunts of those who are surrounding Jesus as he dies on the cross. They taunt him back there in verse 30. They taunt him to come down, save yourself, they say. Why are they saying that? They're saying that because they want Jesus to prove who he is. Because if he could miraculously come down from that cross, perhaps then they might believe him. They set their criteria up. If Jesus can do this, then we can believe in him. And we too do the same kind of thing. I don't know if God appears to you as distant, if you're unsure about who he is. I don't know in your mind if you play out this kind of reality that if he could just show himself in a particular way, give you perhaps what you want, then, then you can believe in him. But here, Mark is telling us a different story of what it is to believe in God. Here, I think Mark is calling those who would read these accounts, those who would hear of Jesus' death. Here, he is calling us to follow, to follow the Lord Jesus to the foot of the cross, Because there we see who God is. There we see a God who is not distant. There we see a God who has come to us. And that's my second point. My first point is the king who can't save himself is, in fact, saving others. The second irony of the cross is the king who feels God's absence so acutely reveals God's presence so definitely. Jesus cries out to his father. When a son or child cries to their parent, a parent has within them this instinctive movement toward that child to want to, hurt, to, want to help perhaps a child in hurt, to want to fix their problems. There as Jesus dies on the cross, he calls to his father. And it is appears as though his father is absent. His father does not rescue him. As we read in our third reading, Jesus dies and he is buried. We read in the Gospel of Mark that the curtain curtain of the temple was torn in two. And it was torn in two from top to bottom. And the way that a lot of Christians understand this, is now, well, this curtain that was surrounding the temple was preventing access to God. And if the curtain is to be torn in two, then humanity can now access the very holy of holies, the place and presence of God. And that is true. And there are other places in the Bible that speak about that reality, particularly the book of Hebrews. But I don't think that's what Mark is talking about here. As he speaks of the curtain being torn in two from top to bottom, he's clear about the agency of the one who does it. It is God who tears apart the curtain. The language of tearing apart occurs 
here at the very end of the gospel, but it also occurs at the very start of the gospel where Jesus is baptised. And there we're told that what is torn apart is heaven. And the Spirit of God comes through what is torn upon Jesus. And what we have here in the cross of the Lord Jesus is heaven being torn apart. And it's not simply about our access to God. It's something more important than that. It's about his spirit that has come to rest upon us. At his baptism, the spirit comes upon Jesus. But here, I think, in the cross, the spirit of God now, because of Jesus' work on the cross, invades our existence, comes into our life. So at the moment where we think that God is most distant We see in the death of Jesus that he has become most present. He has come to us. He has come to us in the darkness. He has come to us in the death of the Lord Jesus. And I know some of us, many of us, have moments in our life for which we feel distant from God. Which God, and it feels like we are indeed in the dark. We can't see him. We don't know what it is for him to be close to him. But here we have an invitation. Here we have an invitation to know the presence of God, and it's not when the sun is shining. Here we have an invitation to know the presence of God when in fact it is dark, when in fact he feels distant. The third and final irony of the cross is that the king who is defeated is indeed triumphant. The nature of crucifixion in the first century was a political statement. There were many ways that the Romans could have ended a person's life. They could have been executed by the sword, a common form of death at the hands of the Romans. But Crucifixion was reserved for political prisoners, for those who have challenged the power and the state of Rome. And there as Jesus is lifted up, there as he's entitled King of the Jews, the Romans are indeed mocking him. They're lifting him up above them. Here is your king who pretends to be above our power. You want to see your king raised high? Here he is. Because here in Jesus' death is a political statement from the Romans. You muck with our power. You challenge us. And this is what we'll do to you. See, it looks like Jesus has lost It looks like he's been defeated. It looks like he's been defeated by the power of Rome. It looks like he's been defeated by the power of the religious authorities, betrayed by family and friends. It looks as if Satan is victorious and that God is absent. But here is the final and most beautiful irony of the cross, that at this very moment of defeat... 
the Bible tells us this is the very moment of Jesus' victory. This is his victory over evil. Here is his victory over the forces of the evil one. Here is his invitation to those who betray him to come close to him. In the cross of the Lord Jesus, he is triumphant over every political power. He's triumphant over death and evil. And here, the Father glorifies him for his victory. And so this morning, I want to ask us a question. Do we know him as our king? Do we know him as the one who has come to us? The one who invites us, even in darkness, to come to him the one who has in his death taken for us that which would prevent us from knowing God as Father, the one who would be stripped naked so that we could be indeed clothed, clothed with his righteousness, clothed with the Father's love. I want to ask us this morning, do you know the power? Do you know the love? And do you know the victory? of the death of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Please stand as we sing.